Conversations from the Retreat From the Center for Sustainable Stewardship Brought to you in part by Big East Fork Retreat at BigEastFork.com All right, here we are, uh, back for another edition of Conversations from the Retreat. We are here at the Center for Sustainable Stewardship on Sustainability Radio. I'm Tony Gerber, your host for uh, the show today. We've got a uh, very special guest we've been trying to talk to here for a while, and uh, his name's uh, Dan Fitzgerald, and he is the uh, Director of Watershed and Sciences for the Harpeth Conservancy. So we're going to be talking conservation and watershed and river and and other things today so welcome welcome to the show dan thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure to be here um you actually recent recently moved here yeah i started at harpeth conservancy last may so just about a year now yeah and um i was curious to, uh it was that like a forestry degree or something that you come out of to to come into this or what kind of training do you do you have for- sure so I consider myself an ecologist. Um, my background's largely in freshwater and marine science and conservation. So I actually got started working with sea turtles okay. out of my undergrad um, on conservation projects and studying their nesting behavior. And then I did my PhD at Texas A&M University working on fish community ecology and studying the impacts of hydroelectric development on fish communities and rivers in Brazil. Okay. Wow. A specialized, pretty specialized. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been going down this path for a while. I've, I've always loved nature and learning about it. It kind of puts my place in the world in perspective for me Mm -hmm. and I've always been interested in pursuing a conservation career. Right. And, uh, that's kind of what, what landed me here. So for, freshwater conservation in the u.s the southeast is the place to right. be i mean i know uh i know east tennessee and that the, the that museum the freshwater river museum in chattanooga i mean it's that's over the top you mm-hmm. know I, I guess being here i mean i know they have a lot of rivers because i mean this was the first place i white water rafted when i first moved here so but i didn't i don't think i realized quite the uh uh you know the breadth of uh resources that we have here and, and related to all that but yeah he, to, like here on this land though the the harpeth watershed i mean this seems to be a pretty unique spot that the doctor has uh you know put together here what uh, yeah well and related to what we were just talking about to give it um to make it concrete for the listeners yeah so the harpeth watershed as a whole including you know the creeks and in, in the retreat area here and the main stem they have a a little more than 50 species of fish, freshwater fish. Wow. Um, now, if you compare that to the Colorado River out west, which a lot of people know, mm-hmm. I forget the exact number, but it's on the order of maybe 15 to 20 native species of fish. Really? Wow. Yeah, so the Harpeth is more diverse than the Colorado. Wow. And if you look at the, the Duck River watershed just south of here, I think that's over 100-something species of fish. 
so this area is, is really diverse um you kind of have to break it down by group so like we're just talking about fish but if you look at freshwater mussels mm. you know shells you'll see in the I've river a lot them here yeah, yeah lots absolutely. of those little ones i've also seen a uh a water moccasin pull a fish right out of the river and uh, pull it to the shore and, and suffocate it by uh, flopping it around until it no longer flops. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like a great... So the fish aren't just fun to watch and and, uh, and catch, but uh, they um, they serve as food for, Absolutely. for a bunch of things. Yeah. And so with the freshwater mussels, this area of the U.S. is actually the most diverse in the world. Wow. So you kind of yeah, have to... It's really neat. When you think about diversity of a system, you need to kind of qualify what you're talking about. Right. Um, but that'll give you an idea. I mean, do you think that that's... I mean, I know in East Tennessee, like the the Appalachians are the oldest mountains in the world. And I know that like Ashland City, which is near here, even when this was an ocean, because Nashville's a valley and whatever, but Ashland City was up above and it was an island. And, the, and you know, the, what they found shells and different things that they've found uh, at Ashland City, I guess, is how they determine that. But d- is the age and some of that, do you think that has to do with the diversity? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a few different ideas as to why this area is more diverse than other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But one of the major hypotheses is evolutionary time. So when the the glaciers were moving down the continent, they didn't quite reach this far down. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you have more time sort of undisturbed time for things to evolve. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah, the glaciers, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so that's over a, you know, a large time scale that you just give but species a- more time to diversify and, and evolve. And kind of related to that, too, there's also just the diversity of habitats across Tennessee, the geology and how different it is as you move across the state. Right. In each area, you'll have a different collection of species that are adapted to live in that type of environment. Uh, so Dan, um, you're working for the uh, Harpeth Conservancy. Mm-hmm. And what, what's the uh, what's the purpose of that organization? What uh, what do you do for it, and what what does it do uh, for us? So the Harpeth Conservancy is a science based conservation organization that focuses on protecting rivers and clean water in Tennessee. And I run our science and restoration program. And so what that involves is any of the data collection that we need to kind of track the status of the river, the health of the river, how well it's doing, how close we're getting to improving it. Um, and also the, the restoration work that we try to do to, to make that change. So if, if you were to look at data from years ago, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if you do that, if you compare, but like say, you know, 40 years ago or something, and you looked at the quality of the, of the rivers here, I mean, were they even collecting data back then? I don't know. So that's the thing. We would love to look at historical data. Um, uh-huh. It's usually an issue of availability. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's probably through organizations like yourself that we even get some of the documentation going on, I guess. Yeah, that's a big part of what we try to do. Um, we usually have specific projects that we're focused on, but a larger goal is just to lay the baseline data that we can use to track progress over time and changes over time. Right. To get at what I think you were were about to ask, um, if we could have data from back there, kind of what we would see is different in the watershed now, is a lot more influence of humans, essentially. Um, All the development that's going on in this area 
has an impact. The development for sure. <clears throat> and that probably counted, you know, I guess what I was thinking in my mind is there's been a lot of restoration that's happened, you know, since the sixties. And I mean, coming out of a time when there was, it seemed like a, a lot of unbridled pollution and different stuff to where, you know, in the early seventies, they kind of clamped down with some regulations and stuff. And, uh, I, I grew up more up near Lake Michigan and up around there. So of course, you know, there was travesty up there back mm -hmm. then because of all the, and it might be more, uh, urban issue, but I was kind of thinking, I wondered if back then when, when the pollution was a little more unbridled, if that actually, if there was any examples of that present here, but you know, probably cause it was mostly country, you know, maybe not so much. I don't know. Um, I'm sure you can find cases in, in both directions yeah. where we've gotten a little tighter with environmental regulations and making sure that, you know, certain issues are just... Or at least we did. You know, I don't know what's going on yeah, right sure. at the moment. But, but in, you know, <clears throat> situations where we've, um, we've definitely improved on how we're managing it in the past, right. but it's all about your baseline and how far back you go. And if you go back far enough, obviously the systems are pretty pure pretty yeah and they've been changed a lot from what they were historically right, right and i and i do know that like the fertilizers and the you know the yard stuff and all the chemicals that happen in agriculture washes off into mm -hmm. the and i mean i mean i know it happens on the coastlines with the ocean and in all kinds of places the home yard deal and all those chemicals, you know, they always end up into the water well, and I'm, or the watershed, you know. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the coastal issues, too, because it's all connected. Yeah. So if you have a home here in the Harpeth watershed or the, the creek out front of our outside of the retreat here, uh -huh. that water will eventually make it to the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So when you hear of the dead zone that happens in the Gulf during the warm summer months. Mm hmm. That's connected to the entire drainage area of the Mississippi, right. which most of the rivers in Tennessee are a part of that. And that's all of that. Uh, the dead zone is all those chemicals and stuff, I guess, right? Kind of yeah, all so kinda maybe we kind of went into that quickly. But if we back up, a big part of what's changed since historic times is, as you were saying, fertilizer. And mm -hmm. so essentially more nutrients going into the streams. The scientific term for that is eutrophication. And those what giant it, blooms. Exactly. Yeah. And what it means is essentially that the plants and the algae in the stream are being fertilized, right. just like you would fertilize your home garden. Right. So you put fertilizer in your yard. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you think about it, what's exactly. going on. Really. You put fertilizer in your yard, the rain washes it out. All water is going to go downhill, reach a creek or a stream eventually, yeah. and it'll just accumulate in there. And it, it then fertilizes the growth of plants in the river. Right. You had, you had mentioned, I've, I've done quite a bit of work with uh, St. Lucie and that area in Florida related to just uh, that county, actually, uh, um, some television work and film work, but a, a lot of it deals with the conservation and the coastline stuff there, which is, uh, which is where I actually got some of my, you know, some of my information. But you were talking about the turtles. Was that, where was that work that you did? Was that in Florida or? No, I, I worked in Costa Rica. And also oh, in Equatorial right. Guinea, which is a country in West Africa. Wow. Pretty cool. So, and that was all part of, I guess, your, that was part of the education. You were able to travel and. I was working as a research assistant. So, oh. yeah, building my research experience and background. Um, but, you know, the issues are the same as you're 
what you're talking about in Florida and the southeast coast of the U.S. There we have a bit more development, so you're really looking at turtles trying to nest on very urbanized beaches uh-huh. where you uh-huh. might even have a seawall that blocks part of the beach so they can't get back to the normal nesting grounds. Right. The beaches where I was working were a bit more natural and you're dealing more with poaching issues and just sort of general trying to understand what their nesting ecology and behavior is like on a somewhat natural beach. Right. So in East Tennessee, <clears throat> which is notorious for their, uh, uh, coal mining over there over the years. Um, what exactly? I mean, I know, and it's been a it's been an issue with uh, uh, the current uh, regime in Washington as far as uh, they changed. I think they changed some of the stuff related to the coal sludge and being able to dump that into the rivers and stuff. I think they've given the green light for that. You know, but I, <clears throat> I, I'm always curious if because just I mean, fairly recently, I don't know, maybe it was five or six years ago, there was a major, like, whatever they keep that sludge in, mm-hmm. uh, it it uh, it broke open and it all drained into one of the river. I guess, I don't know if it was a Caney Fork or, I'm not sure which, which river it was, but it was a travesty. And, um, you know, how do you even go about cleaning up stuff like that when it happens? I mean, is it just, is it just time or is there, is there anything that you really can do or? There are, and you're getting a bit out of my expertise and how you would respond to that. Uh Um, A lot of it sometimes is letting it sort of uh, dissipate. And what was that? The old saying that the solution to pollution is dilution, right? So letting it dilute and the effects kind of mitigated over time through that right um but there also there's targeted ways to try to remove some of that stuff i mean similar approaches to what you saw during the large oil spills in the gulf and things like that yeah i mean i don't have much direct experience with sort of toxic remediation or cleanup but right well i mean it's always overwhelming to me i i just uh all that i mean the gulf thing was but i mean any really any of the stuff related to the water uh you know how you deal with with that i mean i i'm a i'm a land guy though i don't uh, you know i've i've snorkeled and been out in the ocean and you know it's a little uh little overwhelming for me so i would probably stick with the rivers <laughs> like you are but yeah and it, it kind of brings up an issue a point about some of the issues that face our rivers are acute and very direct and impactful like that like a toxic spill or uh, leaching from a some kind of processing plant, for instance. Mm. I mean, that happened in the Harpeth not too long ago. And then others are a little more chronic and maybe less obvious or harder to tackle in a short time period. They just involve a lot more effort stretched Mm. over years to kind of slowly work at the system and get it back to where we want it to be. Right. What's the most difficult thing that you encounter I mean, is it, uh, you know, is it corporate businesses and profit or is it, you know, is it county governments or, I mean, you know, when, when you have to deal with uh, the restoration, you know, what kind of hurdles, I guess, do you have to go through? A, a large issue nationwide that's really kind of a difficult challenge is what we call non-point sources of pollution. So you were, you know, referencing corporations or maybe treatment plants, right? They're all point sources we know 
you know, if they have a permit to discharge into the river, we know, know what, it. what yeah. they're discharging. Cause they usually have to report that to a state agency. We know where it's hitting the river, where it's coming out. Okay. And it's not that it's easier, but it's a more, um, focused and tangible non-point sources are things like fertilizer runoff from people's yards right. runoff from agricultural areas um stormwater runoff when rainwater hits the street and yeah, sends just, motor yeah. oil and you know other chemicals into the streams it's a lot more diffuse mm -hmm. it's harder to deal with because there's not regulatory structures in place to tackle it Right, and it's coming from all over. It's coming from all over. Yeah. So as a result, a lot of the solutions to it end up leaning really heavily on volunteer efforts, um, which is which is great, and you know it's a way to tackle it. But there's less um, enforcement, and it's maybe harder in that sense because you have to piece together a lot of small efforts that aren't necessarily always being coordinated, and you have to rely on people's you know, you need to educate people and rely on their willingness to kind of chip in and do right. their own part. Right. And you also don't, a lot of people may not be aware of their impacts. Like we were just talking about with fertilizing your lawn. Yeah. Maybe people don't even, don't even think, think about, about yeah, the runoff and they just put extra fertilizer mm -hmm. on because it makes their garden grow better, but they're right. not thinking about the consequences downstream. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, it's rightly so a lot of that stuff, um, unless you're in the business. You know, you don't don't necessarily think about it. Um, how many, and you may or may not know this, but like in other counties and other states and other areas, are there things like HARP with the Conservancy in most communities taking care of their water? Or because you you guys are you're you're a nonprofit that basically gets funded from donations. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Is that is that the way? Is that the way most? Uh, organizations that are looking over the water their area are or are some of them state or some of them private or you know how does that work well um to answer the first part of that yes there definitely are a lot of groups like this around tennessee i don't have exact numbers for you but right um just in this area as an example i mean we we work and partner a lot with richland creek watershed alliance the cumberland river compact and there's all these other groups that they kind of take over looking at other watersheds yeah is that like county but is it kind of a county thing or or a river based on the river a lot or? of times it's based on the river they uh -huh. you pick a certain watershed to focus on um that's especially the case for volunteer watershed groups some of them are operating just purely based on volunteer time of their members hmm. um, others may have more of a not a corporate structure but more of a you know company structure and an expanded um, scope. Yeah. But then, of course, there are state agencies as well. The The Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation is mm -hmm. largely responsible for, you know, all of the rivers in the state and managing them. And I think it's just, you know, different groups and agencies have different strategies and things that they're good at. So well, do you have to answer to them or do you have to answer to the state with the work that you do or do you guys exchange that information or... Uh, you know, is there, is there like a central kind of data source of, of this information for everybody to pull from or is everybody kind of doing their own? Well, I wouldn't, know? you know, we definitely collaborate with the state on a lot of our projects. So mm -hmm. our big effort right now is working on a plan to reduce the amount of pollution that goes into the Harpeth. 
and that's being led by the state. Okay. And we're we're just a, working hand in hand with them. Yeah, and we're we are a, a partner in that process. Right. Does that uh, tie into how people can get involved uh, with your organization? It well, that's um more of an expert led uh, group that is being led by the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation, and there's work being done by the EPA as a part of it, and then the different municipalities and um, watershed groups around the area are involved in helping with the data collection. But then we also have a citizen science program. It does tie mm. into that in the sense that having people out there looking on the waters helps us get coverage and understand where we can target our sampling more. But it's, it's a, you know, that's a separate program. It's almost like the bird program, I guess, where people count birds and then like send yeah. it, send it into the main. The so, so like you, the Christmas bird count or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you have people reporting on you that are that are, spend time out on the rivers and do stuff and like what kind of things? I mean, what? Yeah. So how, the, how do you even do that? Well, the program that Jonathan was uh, referencing is a it's a new citizen science effort that we're putting out, and we've done a lot of work in the past with our volunteers helping us collect the data. Mm. to understand what the river looks like and how well it's doing. And this is a new effort on social media platforms, essentially. So it's an app on your phone. It's called Water Reporter. And it lets people take... Yeah, it kind of works similar to Instagram. And it lets people take geo-tagged photos and then upload them to a database. So it's essentially... That's a great idea. It's crowdsourcing watershed mapping. Yeah. So the way that it ties in with the pollution reduction plan, one of the things we're asking people to look for is algae blooms. We were just talking about nutrient pollution in the rivers, how that fuels algae growth. When you have excessive algae growth in a stream or river, to make a long story short, it essentially pulls oxygen out of the water as that algae grows and then also as it decomposes. Mm. It pulls oxygen out, which leaves less for fishes Mm -hmm. and insects and Hence birds the, that hence the dead them. zone. Exactly. Right. That's why the dead zone is an area where there's not enough oxygen to support life. The algae growth is just taking So it all. things can't stay in there. They have to move through quickly or, or get out. Right. Um, and so by having people with this app, Water Reporter, go out, and if they see algae blooms, take a picture, it helps us document their occurrence throughout the watershed. We know what time it occurred, where... Um, if they go back and take multiple pictures for us, we know the persistence, like how long it stayed. Mm. And that helps us then go out and do more targeted algae surveys. Gives us a kind of overview of what the system looks like in terms of algae growth. And then it just informs the work that that sort of expert-led group is doing. Yeah. Mm. So what's in it for uh, for the people of Tennessee or, or middle uh the clean water is nice. Um, you can swim in it. You can surf on it. You can uh, fish from it. You can canoe down it. Um, but the water doesn't have to be that clean for for to enjoy those sports. Um, well, I think you. Can, I mean, you should argue that it it does need to be clean, right? If you have a lot of people recreating in in a river, so take the Harpeth. I think the number that um, last year they saw about 500,000 people pass through the Harpeth River State Park. If you have that many people in Tennessee wow. canoeing down that river and swimming in it, playing in it, we we need some clean clean yeah. water. We need that held to a pretty high standard. Yeah. 
Now there are actually issues with, you know, some blooms of algae can be toxic. Not all of them are. Sometimes it's just a, you know, excess growth of a benign species, but certain wow. species of algae can release a toxin. Wow. So if you have a system where the nutrients have been um, overloaded and skewed to promote that type of growth, that's a potential risk if you have people fishing and swimming in that river. Right. Does anyone drink uh, any, does any of the water uh, get pulled out of the Harpeth system for, for drinking purposes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the city of Franklin pulls water out for drinking water. I believe they also get some water from the Cumberland as well, but there are definitely withdrawals within the river for drinking water. I think I'd rather have a little uh, Harpeth Cola as opposed to the Cumberland Punch. <laughs> <laughs> Good water, so clean water. There's something. Uh, obviously, my question is a little bit. Uh, I facetious. mean, you drink the water out of but, this uh, up here, don't you? I, I drink the water out of the creek here, out yeah. of uh, Biggie's Fork Creek. There's nothing upstream, and uh, yeah. haven't uh, haven't keeled over yet. Haven't so. keeled over yet. <laughs> I, I used to have a lot of hair, and, and I don't know if that's cause and effect. But uh, well, maybe I better not take any sips. <laughs> keep while well, I keep my hair. There's something about clean water that's just uh, that's just religious. I mean, baptism and mikvahs and mm. absolutions, absolutions, and something that goes back uh, way well, back behind in our psyche about clean water. That's uh, good to have around. And and the wildlife. I mean, to be able to go out there and like when it was real cold, the lake gratitude out there froze and. We would go out there and explore, but it was you could see all the fit, you could see all the stuff underneath mm-hmm. the ice. But it was neat to be able to walk out there and look down and, and see that stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, um, it's pretty surprising, really. I that's mean, amazing how much that they can. There is. Yeah, well, and it's amazing that they can survive, survive that. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, they're adapted to it, but when you see it at first, you're sort of taken aback. What What's the most unusual uh, uh, wildlife creature or species that you've come across here in Tennessee? Related to the river, or I mean, a fish or some kind of just maybe something unusual we haven't. Um, I don't know if it's unusual, but I think one of the coolest things in this area are all the darters. They're those really small fish that live in um, the riffle and kind of rapids areas. Hmm. They need fast flowing water that's well oxygenated. Uh-huh. Um, the reason it's cool, I think, is because most people who are fishing probably don't ever see them because you're not. And they're called <laughs> riffers? Darters. Oh, darters. Okay. <laughs> Riffers. No. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a music guy, you know, I can't help myself. <laughs> so they're called darters because they sit on the bottom and they kind of dart around. Yeah. And that's their, you know, their strategy for feeding and that's how they got their name. Um, you know, but a lot of people don't see them. You're not going to catch them unless you go out with a, a seine net. You're not going to catch them on a hook and line. Uh-huh. But they're one of the most diverse groups of fish in the area. Um, uh-huh. They also have some pretty cool history with the conservation movement if you are familiar with the snail darter and the teleco dam controversy well yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so that happened in tennessee and the endangered species in question was the snail darter so it's just a pretty cool i mean i think a lot of people around here may not realize how much diversity there is and uh you don't see it unless you get out there and explore around and look for it i mean i only did by going to the museum in mm-hmm. Chattanooga, that's when I really realized how much it was. I mean, you know, Tennessee, I mean, you, that's one of the reasons the movie industry comes here is because there's so many different kinds of kind of environments you can go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess it's part of the diversity you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, it's part of the reason it's such a diverse and beautiful state. Williamson County is uh, 
There are other counties besides Williamson County that the uh, the Harpeth uh, flows through, correct? It's a yeah, the Harpeth starts in Rutherford County in a mm -hmm. largely agricultural area, flows through Williamson, um, Dixon, Cheatham, and Davidson County. Mm. Are there other watersheds that, that could use a conservancy that takes care of that takes care of them absolutely i mean i think they all could um we also you know i will say that we we're really focused statewide as an organization we use the harpeth as a demonstration piece and we we do most of our work here um but we try to do it in a way that impacts rivers throughout the state but yeah in terms of capacity and you know, we can't cover every watershed as well as we would like to so the more groups and the more people that are involved in it the better so there are other groups and other other watersheds how does someone find their watershed to help their own watershed if they don't happen to be on the harpeth i'm not sure where you I'm not, I'm not trying to think of a place where you could go and type in your address that may give it to you directly um but if you googled your your town and address and watershed i'm sure it would come up mm -hmm. just through a search like that you know, we're used to uh, purchasing water that's out uh, of filtered in New Jersey or someplace far. They come in these little plastic bottles. And uh, if we were to drink our own local water, I'm sure there'd be a lot more interest in where is this stuff coming from and what am I putting into my body? But, uh... Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, we, we promote, this is a little different, but it kind of relates. We promote a lot of recreational use. Uh, we, we love the people use the harpeth so much and that people get out and kayak and the rivers are in the area for just that reason the more you interact with it the more you realize that you depend on it the more likely you are to respect and conserve it if you're drinking it sure they'd be on a whole different level but it's the same idea the more that you see it and understand what it does for you and why we need to protect it the better what's going on now as far as how can people enjoy the water what uh, are there a county or state uh, recreational departments or programs to help people enjoy the our beautiful waters? Yeah, uh, an, an easy one to point people towards would be if you look up different blueways. So what that refers to is where you have a hiking trail through a park, a blueway is um, trying to create different access points along a river so people can easily get in, kayak mm -hmm. down, canoe down. And so the Harpeth has a lot put on, but the, there's an effort across the state to have more blueways and people... Um, easily accessible points for people to get out and enjoy the rivers so so a blue way is that just like out there on highway 100 where you have a boat boat ramp is that what exactly but that's what that's called yeah, yeah. the blue way would be the all of those in combination that I let see. you get in in highway 100 and float down all right. the way to the narrows of the harpeth if you wanted right I was curious, you know, and I mean of course in Tennessee I mean uh, back uh, FDR time they started the uh, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and this state probably has more, I would, I mean, I would guess probably more dams and hydroelectric than, I mean, I don't know, there's places out west and some big, but it's very prevalent here. What kind of, uh, you know, what, what kind of complications or, or what type of uh, maybe signatures around the dam systems and, and the rivers and stuff do you, do you come across or have to deal with? If you were to ask me what I thought the worst thing you could do to a river was, it would be to dam it. I think that's the single well, yeah. largest impact that you could have on a river. Um, and the reason is it just fundamentally changes the system. Yeah. 
So we were talking about darters a second ago, and they need fast-flowing, well-oxygenated water. There are a lot of species that live in rivers mm -hmm. that are adapted to moving water. Mm -hmm. Like there's different aspects of that, the process of um, having water move and having rain events that then flood and wet seasons and dry seasons. Mm -hmm. That species cue their whole ecology to. They breed in the spring, right? When the rains start coming, it kind of triggers that as temperatures change. Right. When you dam a river, you stop the flow and turn it into a lake, right? But mm -hmm. then you also get stratification of the water. The temperature, you know, will change as you go down and the, the bottom will be very cold. The top will warm up a lot. Which changes the, the animals, I guess. Yeah, it changes the, the habitat for yeah. the species that live there. And so that's why you'll see in reservoirs, certain species will come to dominate um, and you'll lose a lot of the other ones. And change the balance, I mm -hmm. guess. So I mean, it just it's a <clears throat> it's just a fundamental shift. I mean, in almost right. every way, it changes the dynamics of the system. I mean, it seems like that rapid water movement and stuff like going through and st I mean, you know, I guess fish go through there too and stuff, or I don't know. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, what yeah. happens to the? I mean, you know, is it <clears throat> uh, is it deadly for a lot of the wildlife? Just the, just the fact that the dam is there, moving that water back through and. Uh, the hydroelectric part where it's, you know, being used oh, you, to you, turn um, turbines. I mean, you mean where that's actually like the release, yeah, physical the release coming yeah, out of the right, dam. Right. Yeah. So it has a lot of different effects. Um, downstream. One thing it can do is cause extra erosion. You know, you have a lot of pressure and you're releasing a lot more water in mm. a short period of time than that river or Creek would have normally seen. Right, right. So you can get more erosion. Um, you also can change. So if you think of downstream of a, a dam, you may have the river kind of acting more like a river and there's a certain temperature. If they're releasing water from the under the lower part of the reservoir, mm -hmm. it can be colder. And a lot of species are very sensitive to shocks like that changes in temperature, quick changes in oxygen levels, quick changes in pH. Right. And so, you know, you can, you can send a shock into the, the downstream part pretty quickly hmm. that can result in so dan let's uh, let's give you a benign dictator status for okay for this exercise uh are there any uh dams that you would remove and, and uh you know how much hydroelectric power do we need and how much uh you know how much could we do without well that's a hard i mean that's a tough question because there's a lot there's a lot really packed in there um one is that you don't want to just completely deny growth, right? So I, my gut would say, let's take them all out, but that's probably not a realistic solution. Um, mm -hmm. If there are certain dams that are providing energy, you know, we may need them for, for certain reasons. Also, a lot of people really like lakes and the, the recreation that it provides, so... I mean, new, I mean, doesn't it create new wildlife? Or, I mean, a whole new deal, doesn't it? Well, After yeah. a period of time, I guess. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it'll eventually stabilize and it'll, it creates a lake environment, right? And so that creates opportunities for other species and also for recreation that weren't there before that oh, people right. like. So yeah. some cases you may want to, you know, it, it depends think, on what you're, you're trying to prioritize. A, a wild and crazy guy who likes uncontained water, free-flowing water without the restrictions of a... Yeah, if you left me to my devices, but but there's a lot to consider. So um, behind a lot of dams, like legacy dams that have been there a while, 
you can get accumulation of toxics or pollutants that build up in the sediments. So if you were to just go in and tear out a dam, you'd release all that. Yeah. You could potentially release a lot of toxics downstream. And so you kind of need to look at the situations as they exist now and figure out what the consequences would be and what the best alternatives are and solutions moving forward. It's not a straightforward, you know, one thing fits right. all type of approach. Right. But yeah, I mean, most of the lakes in Tennessee, in my understanding, are reservoirs. There's very few natural lakes. So if you're thinking of conservation from the standpoint of protecting the diversity and the systems that were here historically, you would want to remove as many dams as you could yeah. to, to reconnect those, those rivers, to get them functioning how they used to function. And that's one thing I, I haven't mentioned yet, too, is that reconnecting them, those dams are barriers a lot of times for movement of, of species, particularly fish. Didn't the um, Harpeth Conservancy, didn't they remove a, a, a flathead dam? Or there was a mm-hmm. dam that was recently... Um, yeah, there was a lowhead dam mm-hmm. um, uh, around Franklin that was removed. It was a big partnership with the city of Franklin, our organization, state agencies. And when and you say they, a low head, what do you mean? Just a, just physically a low, like we're... Yeah, it refers to how the water um, pours over the top of it, right. as opposed to where you, you have a really large structure that keeps it back and then releases it through a through turbine, like we were something. just talking about. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. so these are, the, these are the kind of dams that you see a lot on smaller rivers and... Um, you got a little waterfall. You got a little, exactly. Yeah. A little did, waterfall. Did you attempt to quantify any changes in the, the species or the um, algae before and after? Yeah, um, we're still, you know, it takes time for the system to kind of stabilize. Um, so we're actually probably pretty soon going to be doing the follow-up surveys. So I don't... So this just happened. This, this happened very recently. Uh, it was taken out in 2012, I believe. Uh-huh. It was before oh, wow. I joined the organization. But yeah, so, it, you know, we're now kind of starting to get to the time period where the, you know, conditions stabilize after that shock and we can start to see what, you know, what has happened. I mean qualitatively we get a lot of reports of people saying that the conditions in the river have improved immensely um just by having the water flow continuously improves everything i mean i think that the water in the summer months sometimes used to not flow over the dam anymore it would just stop it and you would have a kind of dried up area downstream of it so just restoring the flow in and of itself you know that it's improving conditions was there any uh opposition to it did anyone uh, object to its removal you know i wasn't here at the time so i'm i don't know i haven't heard of any i think it was a pretty it was a pretty large success it won a a big award it was a big group cooperative effort that what would have been the original reason that they put that in i mean a, a low head type of a dam so it was put in to keep the water levels um high enough to extract water for their drinking drinking water okay. plant is right. what I understand. Okay. And so the, when it was taken out, there was another structure put in that helps keep the water level higher, but still lets water flow yeah. through. Okay. So it's sort of engineered to a newer technology kind of, yeah, that has similar functionality from, you know, the city's perspective and needing to, to have a constant um, level to extract water for their drinking right. plant. Right. But is built in a more environmentally friendly way. Yeah. It's pretty neat. And there's a group there's a, a group throughout the state now that's looking at 
removing similar dams all over. So, you know, if you look around the country, there are some other states that are a lot farther along in the dam removal process. Um, Tennessee's, I think, kind of just getting started. And that the Lowhead Dam on the Harpeth was one of the first to be removed in a long time. It kind of triggered some of this activity now. So I think in the future, you'll see a lot more of that work. And it's, I think it's one of the single best things you can do to restore a, a river to what the river should be yeah. looking and functioning like. And, and, you know, if they would get the solar thing happening or some of the more, then, then you know, we wouldn't have to rely so much. But I do know that Tennessee's electric bill, I mean, I've been here 38 years, I guess, and the electric bill has always been pretty reasonable in Tennessee. And I think, I mean, you know, that's like one of the mm-hmm. the little sweet effects of the dams. But, um, you know, if they'd get the uh, some of the alternate energy there, then it seems like they could maybe remove some of the, you know, those bigger dams. But yeah, but dealing you know, with that, TVA too, which I, you know, I think they're a fairly sizable organization as well. So, and that effort <clears> that, <throat> that I was just talking about, that's not looking at hydroelectric dams, or right? it's looking at smaller structures right, right. that are okay. usually. To be honest, they're usually at a point where the person or entity responsible for them no longer wants to deal with it. It's not cost effective. It's past its original purpose. Right. And they, they don't want the liability anymore. So it's, it can be a win-win yeah. for the people responsible for it and the environmental organizations that want to restore the river. Well, um, about 1930 or 1940 or so, the Rotary Club put a... Uh, a levee across the waters in our headwaters to create the Lake Lovemore. And uh, it sure is nice to look at and swim in and canoe across. And there's a spillway um, that mm. uh, the fish can't cross going upstream. So uh, it's definitely a management issue. You can't, you can't win uh, or lose. You can just sort of manage the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sort of what humans do to our, you know, the more humans every 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 year we can ma- we can manage the situation best we can but of course the best thing for other species for us for us to go away which is not going to happen anytime soon hopefully right but uh, hopefully yeah. you know Williamson county is uh we keep our rivers clean we're gonna have almost double the population or um, you know we're just yeah. growing and growing and that's got to be a um how can this how can this county continue to grow or how can this county continue to grow and how can we maximize our, our recreational and healthful water here as as we go through that growth that's uh something i'm glad that the harpeth conservancy is here to uh to yeah. work through but um are there any projects now we're working on or things that we're looking forward to to keep our keep this county and, and the areas of middle tennessee just so so beautiful as we continue to take in uh, uh refugees from other parts of the country and and as one of those refugees i would say that i think you know, what it really comes down to is just having that growth happen in a planned and organized way, right? If you, if you let the growth happen haphazardly and it's not coordinated, that's when, you know, it can just consume all the remaining natural open areas and rural lands that, you know, get converted into subdivisions. And Mm. I think that's what a lot of people um, are worried about around here. And so you can, I think the growth is good. I think it shows that this area is a really great place to live and to work. And the fact that people want to come here is a good thing. It's just that we want to have that growth be directed in into areas where it makes the most sense and away from areas that are the most important. Yeah. So this area that we're in here at the retreat is a good example. I mean, this is 
one of the most forested parts of the watershed. And, you know, it, we probably want to keep it that way. If you're going to have growth, maybe it makes sense to direct it into areas that are already have seen some impacts of it and just have it concentrated and, and done a little more intelligently. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, you know, I, I wander in the, in the woods and uh, I like wandering up, um, <coughs> up creeks. And um, just uh, two months ago, I was wandering up a creek and usually you just see the, um, the limestone underneath and you can see, see some, some daughters or some uh, vegetation or some rocks looking for fossils and then I noticed that there was a uh, sand I said why wouldn't the sand be washed away here sometimes you get a little flat area you'll have some some mm -hmm. silt and sand but uh, this is sort of large larger granular uh, sand and I went up I saw more and then as I, I climbed out of the creek up into the um, the ridge uh, the the forest sort of melted away and big tree stumps were there and I realized that hey this place has just been clear cut within the last year and um, hmm. I was uh, you know my heart dropped a little bit and uh, mm -hmm. so they're messing with my creeks <laughs> by, by removing the uh, the forest uh, at the headland there there's a lot more erosion going on and um, I felt a little uh, Violated, I guess. Threatened. Someone could do this for to me. You know, how could you? Right. Uh, damn well, it, it's my creek. <laughs> yeah, it could <laughs> impact want, your water. And well, and it brings up the point of if you want to think of okay, where does it make sense to direct development and to to kind of keep an area more pristine and and intact? Well, the headwaters are where you want to keep intact, right? That's the source yeah. water for. You know, we were talking about drinking water in this conversation, and anything that happens upstream is going to have consequences downstream. So, you know, a lot of our restoration work currently is focused in the headwaters area in Rutherford County for just that reason. You've got to start somewhere and starting at the top makes the most sense in a yeah. lot of, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Who was that great moral philosopher who said, don't do unto downstream what you would not have upstream do unto you? <laughs> who, who, was, who was that? I think it was Johnny Rivers. <laughs> well, uh, we look like we're about at the, getting to the latter part of our uh, time here. Does anybody else... Uh, got any questions for dan well dan how do people get in contact with you yeah, absolutely. what type of uh, volunteer what type of uh, contributory uh opportunities do people have with your organization yeah the, the easiest way to find out more about our organization is to go to our website which is harpethconservancy.org or harpethriver.org and we have volunteer opportunities throughout the year we talked earlier about the water reporter we'd love to have people download that app you can just go to the app store yeah. Search for Water Reporter, download it, and as you're out on the rivers, just help us keep an eye on them, monitor them. You can find more information about that program and the specifics of what we're looking for on our website as well. Yeah. And then we also occasionally have stream cleanups and volunteer restoration projects um, throughout the year. So if you just sign up for a mailing list, you'll get info on them when we have them. All right. And harpethriver.com, that's a good... Uh... .org. Oh, but Harpeth, yeah, harpethriver.org, yeah, yeah. but that's a good There's one. some Chinese site if you put the dot com in it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dan. That was, that was great. Thank yeah, you very much. we appreciate it. Thanks for being on. Oh, thank you very much for your support, and I, I appreciate you having me. It was fun. All right. You're listening to uh, Conversations from the Retreat. I'm Tony Gerber with the doctor, and, uh, and Masood's in here with us, but we didn't hear much from him today. And, of course, our guest, Dan Fitzgerald from the uh, Harpeth Conservancy. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time. You just heard 
Conversations from the Retreat From the Center for Sustainable Stewardship CSSFamily.org Thank you.